Amen. You may be seated. I invite you this morning to take your copy of God's Word and to turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. You may be thinking to yourself, that's an unusual place to go, but we are this morning reflecting on the beauty of the miracle of the Incarnation, and we find just such an apt description of what took place by the hand of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 3 to 7 for you this morning. Uh, I'll go a little bit further to verse 8, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Philippians 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And Lord, we pray that as we reflect on the beauty of the miracle of the incarnation, God dwelling among us as one of us, I pray, Lord, that you would, this morning, strengthen our faith in your goodness, that you would remind us of your complete understanding of our position, and that we would be reassured that you are indeed Emmanuel, God with us, always present with your people. I pray, Father, that you would, this morning, Open our eyes once again. Remind us fresh this morning of just how miraculous Christmas really is. How truly beautiful the miracle of God coming in the form of a baby boy really is. I pray you do that this morning by your spirit, through your word, in Christ's name. Amen. Every year we celebrate Christmas, and every year we are always reminded and discussing once again of the fact that Christ came, that he was born, and that he dwelt among us, that he grew up just as you, <coughs> you and I have grown up, that he learned to live as a man in the exact same way that you and I have learned to walk and to tie our shoes. And we talk about this every year, and we become so familiar with it that my fear is that it becomes something that is second rate. It's something we understand, but something of the majesty and the, the beauty and the mystery of this miracle, I fear, is kind of lost on us. The same way that when we first encounter a street performer working miracles, or card tricks. At first, we are mesmerized, but then as soon as we know the secret behind the card trick or the, or the magic show that he performs, we then begin to lose some of our, our, 
uh, infatuation with it. We begin to lose some of that, that mystery, that, that awe and that wonder. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would not lose the awe and the wonder that God, infinite, almighty, holy, descended to take on a human form, a man every, in every respect as you and I are men and women. We encounter first in the Gospel of Luke this announcement that the angel makes to Mary, and we read it year after year as we tell the Christmas story, but make sure you hear it. Make sure you understand exactly what this angel is saying and how mind-blowing it must have been, not only for Mary, but for the angel who spoke it. In the sixth month, Luke tells us, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, a human city, Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And that's significant. And the virgin's name was Mary, and Gabriel came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, as everyone is who encounters an angel. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Notice that. Mary, you, the virgin, will conceive, and you will give birth to a human boy. You shall call his name Jesus. In the Hebrew, it would have been Yeshua. God is salvation. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, is this a human baby boy? If so, what could this mean to also call him the Son of the Most High? What Most High are we talking about here? Is he God or is he man? The angel goes forward, goes on. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. David is a man. Joseph is of the lineage of the house of David. We're shifting back and forth. It's a baby boy, but it's being conceived of a virgin. It's going to be of the lineage in the house of David, but it's going to be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever an eternal dominion? Can you imagine Mary's confusion? Is this a human baby? Is this a divine God baby? Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born unto you will be called Holy, the Son of God. In this short paragraph, in this announcement that Gabriel makes to Mary, we find that this boy is going to be conceived of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally conceived, 
supernaturally Mary will, give, will bring forth a baby boy. She is a virgin. She will not sleep with Joseph until after Jesus is born. We find here that this boy is to be born of Mary, a human boy, but conceived without any human father, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see in this text that he is called the son of Mary, but he is also the son of his father, David, of the throne and the lineage and the line of David. And at the same time, he is called the son of God, the son of the Most High. God begets God. God is God. And what the angel Gabriel is saying to Mary is that this child, this boy, this man, is also going to be God. How is this possible? He is a human, but he is also divine. You, you've heard it before. You've heard it a thousand times, and so it seems fairly commonplace, second rate. Yes, he's obviously God, and he's obviously a man, but stop and ask yourself the question, how is it possible for there to be someone who is both fully God and fully man? There are certain aspects of God. When we study the scriptures, when we reflect on who he is, we understand that he is infinite, that he is everywhere present at the same time. Big fancy word that we use to describe it, omnipresent, to be completely present in every moment of time all over the universe, everywhere, from the beginning to the end of time simultaneously, and yet to be outside of time, to be beyond time, to see all time in a single second. It says in the scriptures that a thousand years is as but a moment to the Lord, and a moment is but as a thousand years. To say that there is to be a person born that is omnipresent and infinite, and yet a man growing, learning to walk, tie his shoes. At the same time, we look at God and we see someone who is all-powerful, who can do anything just with a word. And yet, there's to be a boy who is going to have to be nursed by his mother, cared for, diaper-changed loved on in all the ways that any child needs to be loved on, helpless, having to be fed, having to be rocked to sleep at night. How is it possible that you have an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise being who is at the same time human, frail, learning to walk, needing to be fed? As it says in Luke, growing day by day, in favor with both men and God, in wisdom and in stature. If you really stop to think about it, these things are impossible. How really, how truly is it that we can have an almighty, infinite God living among us? Certain things about both God and man simply seem to be incompatible. How is it possible for him to truly live as a human, the way you and I live as a human, and yet to also be God. Have you ever played Blackjack 21? Flip a card down, trying to get to 21. So you throw down, say, a, a 10 or a king or something like that. Okay, hit me again. You throw down another card. All right, you're at 18, 19. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. You needed two. The odds of that happening are pretty rare, so you, you just say, I'll stop right there. I'll just leave it right there. Guy next to you, he hits 21 exactly. You're like, ah. Oh. 
Can you imagine playing 21 with Jesus? You let him go first. Hit me or, or what? Like, what's the next card going to be here? Like, he's going to know, right? Or does he? I mean, stop to think about it. He's fully human. The scripture says he lives life just like you and I do. We hear this announcement that Gabriel makes to Mary, and he's fully God. He knows life beyond what you and I have ever known. How is it possible to be fully divine and fully man? How are we to even conceive of these two different beings coming together as one person? Paul gives us something of an answer to that question. And I don't want to raise your hopes too high this morning. It will and always be mysterious. When we talk about the one person that is Jesus being fully man and fully God, though we could spend hours and hours and hours discussing all the different ways that his divine attributes would have intertwined, intersected, and interworked with his human attributes, we could never fully articulate or fully understand it. But we can approach it because of what the Spirit says to us through the hand of Paul in Philippians 2. Look at what Paul says. He says, have this mind, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a word that occurs multiple times there, which I want to draw your attention to, and that word is form. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, that's the first time it's mentioned, and then he goes on, he says, being, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And then a little bit further on, it says, being found in human form, he goes on to die on the cross. This word form comes from the Greek word morphe. The Greeks use this word to talk about the inner essence or the inner quality of a thing. To illustrate, I'd like to draw your attention to the nature of water. When you walk down Riverside Park, you see where the rivers come together, the North and South Thompson, and they merge. And the water follows the banks. It's going to flow within a predetermined channel. But when we look at water, we don't understand water simply by the contours in which it fills, the the glass it's found in or the river banks through which it flows. If you stop to look at water, you understand there's a certain essence and a certain quality to water. For example, when it is heated, it turns into a vapor or gas, This leads to humidity, which makes us very uncomfortable in the summertime. At the same time, when it is cooled, it forms a liquid. And when it is really cold, it forms a solid. Nothing unusual about that. But what is unusual about water is that the solid in water, when it is formed, is actually less dense in its solid state than in its liquid state, which is why you have ice cubes floating on the top of your glass as opposed to dropping to the bottom of your glass. Now, this is the essence of water. There are certain properties to it. There are certain characteristics to it that make it unique, irrespective of the form or the container in which it is found. That's the idea that Paul has here in this particular passage when he's talking about Jesus. He says, though he was in the form of God, he's not referencing an outer form or an outer shape. He's talking about the inner characteristics or the inner qualities. 
There are certain attributes to God that mark him out as God. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. That is, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present at the same time. These are the characteristics of God. And Paul, talking about the person of Jesus, says that when that though he was in the form, that is, the morphe, that is, possessing all the characteristics of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. What Paul has just said to you and me there in that particular moment is that Jesus, prior to his incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, had all of the attributes. He had all of the qualities and all of the characteristics. He was the morphe, that is, he had the essence of God. He was God. There can be no other way of describing him or thinking of him. He was not a created being. He did not come to exist at some later point in time. The second person of the Trinity, whom the scriptures refer to as Yahweh, whom we come to in the New Testament to call Jesus or Yeshua, was, is, and always shall be God, possessing all of those characteristics. However, possessing those characteristics, Paul says that he did not grasp after it. What this means is that though he is equal to God in every respect, the second person of the Trinity did not consider his position in the glory of heaven right there beside the Father as something which he would grasp. The word that Paul uses here is a a clutching after, a a sort of a a rabbit holding on to. He says he wouldn't grasp after it, meaning he would let go of those sorts of things. But we be careful at this point. Because as we look at this, it's clear that Paul is not suggesting that somehow when the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, took on human form, that in any way he let go of any of his attributes. It says he was in the form of God, but he did not count his equality or his position with God as a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of of a servant. This expression here made himself nothing. He, another way to translate that phrase is to say emptied himself or he poured himself out. Now, many theologians at this point come to this particular verse and they will say, well, what Paul is suggesting is that there were certain aspects of his deity, of his divinity, that he relinquished in order to come as a man. But that's not actually what the phrasing of the Greek grammar says. It says, He made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. When it says he emptied himself, or as the ESV translates it, he made himself nothing, the idea here is that he poured himself He reduced himself to a human form, but it doesn't mean that he gave up any of his qualities or any of his attributes as God, but that he actually came and joined with a human form. It's addition by subtraction. To make yourself nothing is not to relinquish any of your attributes, 
Paul describes it with these three participles. How did he make himself nothing? It says, first, he took the form of a servant. Second, born in the likeness of men. Third, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There are three ways that Paul mentions here in this particular passage that deity took on humanity. Number one, born in the likeness of men. Number two, being found in human form, he humbles himself. Uh, sorry, number two, taking on the form of a servant. Number, th- number one, taking on the form of a servant. Number two, being born in the likeness of men. And number three, humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. Look at the first two. He says he became a servant. He took on the form of a servant. And what Paul has in mind here is this idea that he comes in order to serve his people to their greatest need by dying in their place on a cross. In addition to that, he is born in the likeness of men. Now, I don't buy new cars. I rarely, rarely ever buy a car, ever. When I do, it's always at least 5 to 10 years old with about 150,000 kilometers on it, generally. But I have had the experience, as I'm sure many of you have had as well, in going to the dealership and taking a new car for a test drive. And I want you to imagine for just a moment going to the dealership, seeing a brand new vehicle with all of its shine, it's washed, it's waxed, it's brand new, you get into it, it has that new car smell, and you decide you're going to take it for a test drive. And you arrange with the salesman to go for a test drive out in the country. And suppose it was raining, and it's muddy, and you take these back country roads, and you're really putting this vehicle through its paces, and you you splash through a couple of potholes, and you get mud up on the hood of the car, such that when you come back to the dealership after your test drive, it's now coated in mud. You look at that car, and you say, yeah, it handled really well. The salesman looks at the car, and he's thinking to himself, man, now I'm going to have to get that car washed, because now it's filthy. The luster and the shine of that vehicle is still there, but now it is covered over with mud. Now that luster and that shine, though it is still present, is not as easily perceivable or discernible. In the same way, what Paul is saying to us is that God took on human form. And though he did not relinquish any of the attributes of his glory, though he did not relinquish any of his deity, whether we're talking about his power or his wisdom or his infinitude, he did not relinquish any of those things. But that when he took on human form, though he possessed all of those divine qualities, they were somewhat masked beneath the human form. In the same way, as when you take a brand new shiny car out for a test spin and you get a little bit of mud on it, it's still the same shiny car, but its luster, its shine, its glory has been somewhat concealed. When we come to this first expression, what Paul wants you and I to understand is that though Jesus, after the incarnation, possessed all of the qualities of deity, though he possessed them, their expression took on a different 
form. The second thing he says, being born in the likeness of men. Being born as a servant. He experienced life exactly as you and I would. This is where all analogies break down. But it is, in a sense, as though a king over a great, great kingdom, riding through his capital city one day in a run-down, less well-to-do neighborhood within that city, observed there men living in great poverty, and he determined to know life as they lived it. And so though he has been born a king and has lived his whole life as a king living in a palace with great power and great majesty, though he has always had food, though he has always had the greatest physicians to look after his every medical need, though he has always been protected and defended by imperial guards, he forsakes all of those things. He moves into this impoverished portion of the city. He gets hungry. He does not call for the royal chefs, though he could, to prepare him a meal. He gets cold. He comes down with sickness and illness. He does not call for the royal physicians to attend to his medical needs, though he could. He is insulted because he is not recognized. He is stolen. He has his property taken. He suffers every indignity and every injustice, and though he could have called at any moment for the imperial guard to come and to rescue him and to uphold his honor, he forsakes all of those benefits in order to know how men in this portion of his city live. What Paul is saying to you and me is that this is the nature of the incarnation, that Christ comes to serve, that he comes as a man, that he pours himself out by taking upon himself humanity. And he concludes it with this last expression. He humbles himself. Think about that for a moment. When we think of great leaders, great kings, we think of individuals with confidence and pomp. We might even call it a degree of arrogance. But when we behold Christ, the word that Paul chooses to describe him is humility, deliberately, intentionally humbling himself to obey the Father's will to go to a cross for you and for me to die for our sins, a death that we deserve, but which he himself did not. You know, it's every year at this time I turn back to certain passages, certain phrases, which have always touched me and meant a lot to me. One letter that I read every time, this year, every time, is a letter by a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a part of the resistance during World War II. Dietrich Bonhoeffer conspired with a group of men in an attempt to remove Hitler from power, to have him assassinated. 
His conspiracy was eventually found out and he was arrested. But he was, before he was ever a conspirator, first and foremost, a Christian, a theologian. In prison in December of 1943, he writes a letter to his family wishing them a Merry Christmas. And I always come back to this letter every year because of what it says about the meaning of Christmas. Bonhoeffer writes, A prison cell, in which he finds himself in prison, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent upon the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. And that's the meaning of Advent. In other journals and other letters, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would recount sweeping the floor of his cell every morning by hand, with his hand, just to pass the time, just to have something to do. He talks about wandering around his cell, making his bed, remaking his bed at least three to four times a day, reciting every scripture verse that he'd ever memorized, all of this just to pass the time from breakfast to lunch being served lunch, marking that time during the day, only to realize that he has at least that much further to go to dinner, recognizing that all of these different chores and all these different tasks that he invents for himself in order to pass the time, as he puts it here in this letter, are ultimately unessential things. And as you read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters to his family from Teagle Prison, you come to the understanding that he knows as a result of what he has done, as a result of the decisions that he has made, that his fate is sealed. It's just a matter of time. And as he considers the plight of humanity, he recognizes that all of us are in a prison cell. This is true for every single one of us here, and you've thought about it before, maybe not in exactly these terms, For those of you among us who are young, you have your whole life ahead of you. You think that the future is endless, that the possibilities are limitless. And for a season, you're right. You have lots of choices. But very soon, you find yourself approaching middle age. Your career is set. Certain opportunities have been closed off. Certain friendships have been walked away from. Certain relationships within your family have been strained. And before too much longer, all of your kids have grown up and have moved away from home. For most of us, we know the blessings of children that are walking with the Lord. For quite a few of us, we also know the heartache and the pain. Decisions that have been made by our family, our loved ones, our children who are not walking with the Lord. We come to that point of retirement in our lives and we look at what has become of a thousand different decisions in all the ways we have chosen. We have made certain choices. We thought we were making the best choices that we could, but ultimately our choices shaped us. And as those opportunities have passed and as that time has slipped, we recognize that our lives are actually full of many bitter disappointments and that time is slipping from us. And all the dreams and all the goals that we had envisioned for ourselves and all the ways we would impact the world around us and we would make a positive contribution, we see that despite our best efforts, it wasn't what we had hoped. It has fallen woefully short. And the hourglass continues to slip. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about his time slipping away inside of a prison. And he says the meaning of Christmas 
is that someone comes and has to unlock the jail cell door from the outside. And I love that expression. But the problem with every analogy is that when you try to truly capture the essence of the miracle by analogy, you fail. All of us, as we come to the end of our lives, we find ourselves in this prison cell, the grains of sand dropping through the hourglass. There's not much left. And as we sit here holding the bars, it's not that there is someone from outside who has unlocked the door. It's that as we step back and we turn and we look, wow, there's a baby boy here in the prison cell with us. Where did this child come from? It's not that God is coming from outside. He has come inside. He will live his life the same way that you and I have lived our lives. He will know every rough surface of that floor, of that jail cell. He will know every sharp, jagged corner. He will know every nook. He will know every cranny. He will have spent his life understanding the same frustrations, experiencing the same difficulties. He has walked through it from the inside. It's not that we stand waiting for someone to rescue us from the outside. It is that God from the outside has stepped in and set us free from the inside. I love that letter from Dietrich Bonhoeffer because in it he talks about the futility of anything that you and I could ever do. But the mistake, and he can be forgiven for this, is that every analogy falls short when we come to the true beauty of God walking among us. He comes to you and me exactly as we need him to. Living life exactly as we live it. If you've ever thought, with all the mistakes I've made, despite my best intentions, it's all gone horribly wrong. How will he ever be able to understand let alone forgive. And Christmas proves that he completely understands and determines to forgive. Merry Christmas, First Baptist Church. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for coming to live with your people in the prison cell to know the same bitter disappointments and frustrations that we have all known and yet to live your life perfectly and gloriously, sinlessly. Lord, we say thank you for setting us free from the futility of time, the bondage of our lives, We thank you, God, that because of Christ, we have a glorious hope and a wonderful future. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.